We believe that wealth is a journey and that this is your jumpstart to trading success. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Traders Mind Chat Show, where we believe that wealth is a journey and that this is your jumpstart to trading success. I'm Mike. And I'm Melissa. So, oh, wow, I am so excited we got our... Yeah, we're, we're like a real Mind show. Chat. I know, cheers. And for anybody who can't see us, we have our new Traders Mind Chat Show mug, so we feel very official now. What's the show about? <laughs> <laughs> these mugs Mike I know the little things it's the little things but we have an amazing show for you guys today we have Chris Peruna he is going to be joining us he has an amazing blog um, it's uh, chrisperuna.com he's mastered the balancing act of trading part-time while juggling a full-time career and family life and during the day he's a real estate professional but he does spend his personal time researching young innovative companies while investing and talking stocks on social media and on his website so um, we can't wait to talk to him today yeah i can't wait to talk to chris either chris is one of the reasons why i'm even here doing this um a long uh, it's got to be uh eight nine years ago uh when i first discovered chris uh, like uh, right, uh, when i started to turn the corner to uh in my own trading journey just to start to see like can this really be done part-time uh and then uh, i searched the internet uh, back then like uh trading part-time and uh, he came up and we met uh, a long time ago. Uh, like, <laughs> it's at a history, it yeah, feels like, like now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, well, uh, here we are. So yeah, I, I can't wait to talk to Chris. Hi, great. So uh, before we have Chris on, we're actually going to um, talk about being a part-time trader. And Mike, as you mentioned, you did start out as a part-time trader um, many years ago. Um, just to give a little bit more background as to how did you get started as a part-time trader? Yeah, so I got started a lot like most people get started well with this idea that you have a little bit of money, you put it in, and more money magically pops out <laughs> the other end, like given uh, X amount of time. So that, for me, started in 99, uh, 1999, and I learned the hard way that that does not, that's not how the market works, right? Because I had no idea what the NASDAQ was back then. Uh, I had no idea of a dot-com bubble. Uh, just put money in, more money magically pops out the other end. So I uh, went to the bank, right? I, I didn't even know where to open an account. I, I go to my local bank to, to open up the, this account. And so I walk in, I'm like, I want to buy stocks. And they say, don't want to buy stocks. Uh, that's way too risky. What you want is this. And they hand me this basket of mutual funds that they have. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I sit there and I'm flipping through the pages and manager walks by and he's like, hey kid, well, what are you doing? Nobody reads those. Oh, uh, no? Okay. So I start flipping through it a little bit faster and I'm like, okay, I'll take this one, this one, and this one. It's like a couple of different stock funds uh, and, uh, and a bond fund. And I thought, well, I'm being smart. I'm letting a professional manage my money. Loads of diversification. Like each one of these funds has like a hundred different things in them. And I had loads of time because I wasn't planning to take this money out until years later, like well, when I would graduate. So uh, from there, uh, I took the money that I had saved. Uh, I had five grand and I'm like, all right, put the start in with that and watch it grow. In about six months, I was up somewhere about 10%. Mm. And 
again, I had no idea about the dot com bubble or any of that stuff. Yeah, or like how the stocks were going up. Like, like this is amazing. I yeah, mean, I just made money. Yeah, like so many other stocks, the indexes, uh, like they're they're up like a hundred percent. Like here I am with ten percent. I'm like yippee, <laughs> that not knowing uh, any better, but. And I'm like, wow, I'm a genius uh, for, for having done this. So uh, I'm in, I'm in uh, earning my bachelor's and my studies start to pick up. Uh, I was a, a sophomore then and it's like, all right, well, the uh, professionals are managing the money for me uh, and I'm diversified. Let them deal with it. I'll focus on my studies. And then 2002 rolls around and I'm ready to take the money out, go out, uh, buy, uh, buy a new car. Thought that I would have a, a nice down payment, maybe even be able to buy the car outright uh, with it. But I didn't have uh, 10, 15 grand lot like I thought. I didn't have eight or seven, or I didn't even have the five that I started with. I was all the way down to four grand. I'm like, what in the hell happened? Oh no, you lost money. Well, how does that happen? Loads of diversification professionals managing it for me and years waited years for for this and here i am with less money than i started so i took the money out went home and i cried and that was my <laughs> introduction to stocks oh wow well, well most people probably would have run for the hills how did you even get back into this no it was uh, a long journey a lot of trial and error um i had that i thought that i would go and start to, to study again and I started watching all the CNBC gurus and started reading some of their books. And I started to build my own spreadsheets and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not going to trust anybody ever. I'm just going to do my own work, right? And so I'm like making this Frankenstein kind of a system. And I thought back then that you look at cash flow statements and balance sheets and so long as the story of the company made sense, then you stick with it, right? But uh, I found out again the hard way that the market is a forward-looking thing and that often the story will change long after the price plummets. Mm -hmm. So you think that you're sitting out with a great story and the price is going down, price is going down, uh, oh, well, the market's wrong. Let me buy more because the story is still intact, right? So you buy some more, goes down goes down oh well if i thought it was a bargain here then down here a lot like it's like a super discount so buy some more and then before you know it like here's another blown up account oh no and then uh yeah so that was that was hard to deal with and i was almost out of the game completely at, at that point that, that's like maybe about uh six seven years in and getting ready to to hang it up later on and you're working full-time at this point too right uh, yeah yeah at that point uh gosh uh, let me think yeah well work i uh, graduated working full-time um and then uh getting ready to, to hang it up go to grad school start a another a job you now with my what i was getting my master's and i got a master's in mba in healthcare administration and, and i just started a, a new job uh, with that being a, a fund manager right like nothing to do with with trading stocks but just managing research funds grants philanthropy uh that kind of thing and my coworker, right happened to be a former wall street guy 
uh, was like, hey, you know, now, now that you're middle management and you're making some money, you should go and take some uh, some of that and put it into the market. I'm like, no, I, I've had my <laughs> I've had my taste of the market. No, thank you. He's like, well, what were you doing? I explained it to him, and he's like, well, you haven't tried this. And the the book that he recommended, one of the books that he recommended, was actually that one, that green one sitting right there, How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill. Mm. And so I went through that, uh, and it's like, wow, that, this, that, this stuff actually makes sense. I thought, like, what O'Neill did was he went and he studied all the big winners going back to, like, uh, 1880, uh, I believe. And... What he found were there were certain common characteristics among the stocks that would go up several hundred or even a couple of thousand percent in a relatively short period of time, meaning a year or a, or a couple of years would have those kind of moves. And he found there were certain fundamental characteristics and there were certain characteristics that uh, on the chart, right? So looking at the chart and seeing like, well, different patterns and things like that. And he would look at it as it being market psychology on parade that, that was one of the the quotes uh, that uh, that he has in the book and the reason why is because it, the market is really a reflection of hope fear uh, and greed of all the collective uh, people that, that are participating so it's a, like a, they had this massive case study of psychology and so when i started to put those pieces together it's like wow this makes a lot of sense but Again, still did not trust professionals going all the way back to that first thing at the bank. And it's like, I'm going to still try to do this on my own. But I just started to, to fumble. And it's like, well, why am I not doing this well? Eventually, I found uh, the New York City Investors Business Daily Meetup Group. Right. So one of the things that, that O'Neill did was he came up with this newspaper, Investors Business Daily. And I started reading that, too. And inside the newspaper, there were these meetup groups for IBD uh, all across the, the U.S. And I think that they even had some internationally, too. So I found one in New York City. I go there and I'm floored by the level of presentations at this thing. It was like a three hour thing once a month. And it was like the same quality presentation that I was getting uh, during grad school. So, That's amazing. Oh, wow. And uh, this was when you were already working in the city, so it was just a great way that you were able to just go after work and be able to meet other like yeah, yeah, traders. Like, like pre-COVID, oh, right? Yeah. Like, so, yeah, this is going back, like, uh, about 10 years now. And, yeah, it was, the group was all volunteers, and it was run by a guy that had just started a hedge fund, a couple of other full-time traders, and then there were a lot of other uh, people of different uh, experience levels, some new people like me, some people with a little bit of experience, a lot of people uh, doing this stuff on the side. And so I went there and I started to, to see like, wow, we're all kind of doing, we're all, we're all trading the same methodology, but uh, everybody's doing it in their own way. And that's when one of the many light bulbs went off of me. It's like, okay, I need to take this, but apply it to my life, my style. Like, how can I do this? And so for, for a year, I was going to, to this group and was studying and trying to apply different things this way, that way, and uh, making it work for me. And then after a year, I went back to those same leaders uh, and I said, hey guys, I've learned a lot uh, this past year. Thank you so much. Here's what I'm doing, let me show you. And they were 
so impressed with what I was doing that they uh, started to adapt some of what I was doing and they invited me to be a leader of the group. Look at that. That was just yeah. within a, a that, year that was how it. things could t turn around for you in your trading. Oh. Well, a year, but a lot, yeah, like 10 years <laughs> in the making, very lot, like overnight success, like 10 years in the making, like uh, everybody says, but th that's basically learning uh, all the wrong things to do, finally finding a group that was uh, willing to, to help me and and have that, that kind of guidance and bounce ideas off of and everything. And uh, yeah, like finding a system that works for you too, like finally connecting yes. with O'Neill, the Canslin method, correct? And mm -hmm. that's how you were able to kind of say, hey, I can make this work for, for me in my own style because um, it's not exactly like his, but kind of like crafting it in a way that worked for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, and one of the early mistakes that, that I made with Kenslin was uh, and O'Neill was trying to treat it like a like a recipe, right? Like a cookbook. And it's great to like in the beginning, you're going to try to copy success, but in the end, you want to model success. Meaning, like you need to make it your own. You need to customize, right? Like and. One of the reasons why, and this is well, what I often tell uh, traders that approach me now, is that you, you need, you know, whatever you end up doing, it needs to do three things. Right? It needs to fit your trading beliefs, it needs to fit your trading goals, and it needs to be something that you can execute well. Right? If any of those three are missing, uh, then it's not going to work mm -hmm. because you can only act on what you believe in. Now, let's say there's like, let's say there's a, a day trading strategy, but you think that day trading is the way too fast and it doesn't really work and and that that's your mindset about it. Well, it, I could show you a day trading system that uh, can generate 100% a, a year, let's say, but you wouldn't be able to execute it because you don't believe that, that it's going to work. So whenever it starts to work out, like uh, you would end up uh, self-sabotaging it. And that's the kind of thing that uh, causes a lot of traders or a lot of systems to malfunction or where person A, uh, it works great for, person B, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and also for day trading is trying to do this as a um, working full time. That's not something that's realistic. And I think that's what a lot of people when they're doing their analysis of the different trading styles, you have to find something that works for you and your schedule. So if you're not giving up the day job, it's trying to find something that'll help be flexible enough for you to be able to still look at the charts and being able to mm -hmm. do the analysis part while raising a family, while having that same day job and making it work um, for your lifestyle. Uh, for me, Day trading didn't work back then because, uh, like, uh, like I had an affinity for for stocks and I started well with stocks, um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that day trading would not work if you have a full time job because there's other people that trade forex. Forex mm -hmm. is a twenty four hour market. So let's say you're somebody that yeah you really want to day trade, but you don't care about the the asset class too much. You might look at, into forks and be like, okay, like I could do this uh, in the evening, and maybe that that fits somebody's schedule a little bit better. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. You're right because I think that's the first step is to kind of explore what type of trading styles are out there. And like you said, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, your hours might be um, during the working day might be a little bit more intense. But you're right if you do have those evenings available or those weekends available. 
that could work better. Yeah, so uh, I think that having an awareness of the types of method methodologies out there, the types of strategies that are out there, that, and seeing like, well, what what resonates, right? Like, a, because there's so many different ways to make money in the market, and there's so many uh, great strategies out there that that work uh, and that are proven to work. So see what's out there first, and then be like, oh, that, that sounds interesting. Let, let's go explore that, and then if it ends up being something that that you like then you could start to customize it to, to see like well can I meet my my goals or whatever goals that, that you have not not just financial goals but also fitting well within your lifestyle like how active do you need to be with this uh, things like that and is it something that you're going to be able to execute well mm -hmm. um, I think that that's uh, something too because uh, to go back to the day trading example, let's say that you're somebody that wanted to uh, day trade stocks, right? So you have to be involved between the hours of 9.30 a.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Eastern. And this is a, a problem that, that I ran into before uh, I left uh, my day job a few years back. Uh, the problem was uh, I got to a level where my knowledge of the market far surpassed what I was able to execute and that would frustrate the hell out of me because I would see these ideas develop say at around 10 a.m. and then what would happen uh, like I wouldn't be able to execute it well because I knew that I could get a phone call or get called into a meeting at any point. Your boss could be walking in on you while you're uh, making a trade. <laughs> yeah exactly so I click the button oh I've got to go do this I leave and then all of a sudden like Profits evaporate now. All of a sudden, I'm sitting at a loss because I wasn't able to execute well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another part of executing well is uh, figuring out what's your worst case scenario, right? Like, well, what's the minimum that you're going to be able to dedicate to uh, to your craft? For some people, uh, and this is still a system that, like, that I follow primarily now, is to do the bulk of my work. Uh, after hours, right? So uh, like either at night on weekend or even before the market opens, then uh, now at this point I'm available for the open. So I'll see uh, different moves, but you could set it up where you could just place orders into the market and uh, set it up as a, a, like a stop limit order. So uh, like the order is just sitting there with a the broker waiting to be triggered if price crosses X. And then if price crosses X, it gets triggered and then you own the stock, but you didn't have to sit in front of the computer, right? It, it just triggers. Now you own it and you have your plan of how you're going to manage it. And it's uh, something that worked for me back then. Uh, and it's something that there's still modifications of that that work for me today. That's so great to know that there is technology available that can help, um, you know, as you are doing your trading throughout the day. So what would the, be the three main tips that you would have uh, for someone who's trying to do this part-time? So the three main tips that for somebody doing this part-time, right? Well, first, again, uh, they need to uh, figure out what kind of a methodology is going to fit them, right? So, so go uh, research all the different types of, of trading strategies, trading methodologies, um, a, a great book to start with is uh, Jack Schwager's Market Wizards. He's actually written several of them. 
go through that book. You're going to find some of the best traders in the world and just see what types of styles resonate with you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you could go and explore uh, more of those types, right? And that's kind of like, well, what uh, led me down that path? Uh, a next thing, and it, you know, the, it just kind of doesn't get talked about enough is figuring out what your trading beliefs are. What are your beliefs about trading? What are your beliefs about money? Because if you have conflicts there, uh, it's going to hold you back. Uh, and most of us are not fully aware of what our beliefs are. That, that's why uh, I wrote the, or we wrote the, the Mara Mindshift Guide. Um, so Available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, cheap plug. But, um, yeah, if you are unaware of what your beliefs are, then they can show up uh, at inopportune times. So go through the exercises in that book and uh, gain awareness. And it's great because even um, as a beginner trader or even for all different areas of your life, like by doing these type of exercises, you're just going to have a much better awareness about what you really want out of either your career or out of your trading. Uh, yeah, and, and it's going to change over time too. So it's not like an exercise where you do it once and then you're, you're set for life because uh, your wants and aspirations are going to change over time. So uh, I would recommend doing an exercise like that once a quarter, mm -hmm. right? And, and each time you do it, it's going to be that much easier because you've already done most of the heavy lifting the first time. Then the second time you, you do it like, oh yeah, like I, I already have a, a starting place. So I'm doing that and then figuring out, well, what, what can I execute well, right? Like, well, what is, well, what does my most hectic, crazy day look like? And then managing for that, because that day will, will happen. And if you have significant money on the line and that day happens and you're not prepared for it, then that could lead to disaster. Yes, to be able to um, yeah, really take that step back, look at your day and realize, okay, like an average day, maybe you would have a lunch hour or some time free to watch, you know, um, how the, the charts are moving. But if you're, you're right, if you do have one of these really hectic days where you can't get away from your office or you can't, you don't have that time to, um, to dedicate to trading, maybe really try to see if there's a different style that could work for you. Yeah, like you, you could literally like do your research uh, like at night on the weekend say that, okay, like if price crosses above 100, right? And, and let's say, that, yeah, like you're, you're trading XYZ, price crosses above 100, and I'm going to buy that breakout. Okay, put the order into the broker. And if it triggers, then great, you're in. If it doesn't trigger, then great, you're, you're not in. But you're not worrying about it at all during the trading day. Uh, if you want to get an alert to your phone to let you know that you're in or out, amazing. You might not even want that. Uh, there was a, a trader um, back in the 50s. His name was Nicholas Darvis. He was a ballroom dancer. He didn't have smartphones or YouTube or anything like that. He had a, a telegram uh, from his broker and he told his broker, you know what? Like, please do not bother me at all during the trading day. I don't want to know. Uh, I'm just going to send you where I want to get in, where I want to get out, how much uh, I'm going to put on, uh, and that's it. Uh, have a nice day. And he went on to write a book, How I Made $2 Million in the Stock Market. And that's a lot of money today. Imagine how much it was back in the 50s. That's so inspiring that he was able to do that as a full-time dancer. I love that. Yeah. 
So really, it's inspiring for all of us, especially part-time um, traders or you know people who are just starting out with this. If you have a family, that this is something that is doable for everybody. Yeah. So that is a really inspiring story. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to do this, uh, you absolutely 100% can do this. I mean, like, a, like if I can figure it out, anybody <laughs> can freaking figure this out. So. And we're going to get some more great tidbits from uh, Chris Peruna. He's going to be joining us in right after this um, word from our sponsor. And be sure to stay till the end of the program where Mike and I will discuss some of the key highlights from that interview. So uh, stay tuned. All right. The sponsor of today's show is the Mara Elite. Get on the path to success with top trading mindset coach Michael Lamont. Complete with a trading game plan, weekly deep dives, proprietary trading tools like the Trade Gauntlet, you'll reduce your learning curve and start winning, with some members seeing upwards of 500% returns in 9 months. Join the Mara Elite today and get 10% off your subscription by using coupon code TMCSHOW at www.marawealth.com forward slash membership. Welcome everybody and thank you for joining us today uh, for another Traders Mind Chat show today. Well, we've got uh, Chris Peruna. I, I, did I say your name right? I, you did. Thank you very much. Uh, I, it's been a while since uh, since Chris and I spoke. And well, we were actually talking a little bit before the show. I should have asked you uh, if that was the correct pronunciation. Uh, it is. My apologies, <laughs> but, but all good. So we've got Chris Peruna on the show uh today and man oh man uh, so he's accomplished so much and, and what well, one of the the great things uh, about chris uh going back from uh when i first started a lot like I, I really got serious about making trading uh into something uh, i'd say like 10 years ago i've been trading for for 20 uh, for over 20 years but it was really uh, really got super serious 10 years ago one of the people that got me serious into thinking that yes this is possible to do from a part-timers perspective is this man right here Chris Peruna hey just Chris uh, I really want to say thank you for for being here I cannot wait to get into it with you and also joining us today too uh our lovely co-host uh Melissa hi everyone Welcome, Chris. So happy. Uh, I was mentioned earlier. We're so happy you're on the, the balance of family, work, trading. This is definitely an issue for so many people right now during this pandemic and now still blizzard. So <laughs> this is the perfect timing. So we can't wait to get your, your insights on this. For sure. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So everybody that, that's joining us live, Melissa is going to be running the, the Q&A. So as you have questions, go type them in. We're going to answer as many questions as we can. We've got a packed house today. Uh, we will get to as many questions as we can towards uh, the end, but keep on typing them in and Melissa will uh, uh, will get to them. But um, Chris, uh, first question that, that we have, tell us about uh, your background and how you got started as a part-time trader and what types of obstacles uh, did you face when sure. you were starting to juggle part-time trading, full-time career, and trying to make it all happen. Sure. So kind of just give you some background on who I am, what I do. And I think most people that follow me online know I don't trade full-time. Um, I kind of run that fine balance of, am I a trader? Am I an investor? Am I getting in and out quickly? Am I trying to hold long-term? Um, those are always the challenges I think all of us have. Um, so to start, I actually, I went to school to become an architect. I graduated as an architect. I focused primarily on historic 
self-preservation, if you will, and I practiced for about seven years. Um, I graduated in 2001. Um, while I was in college, it was the late 90s. So I actually was a five-year program. I went into school in 1996. And uh, by 1998, we were in the boom of the dot-com bubble, if you will, and went to my father and said, hey, you know, he, my father, so just to give you some background. My father was actually a restaurant owner. So he owned two restaurants, worked mostly nights and weekends, and then also traded during the day. But differently than what you and I do, he called a broker. He didn't have the internet, if you will. The internet was just starting to come out at that point. A lot of it was dial up through AOL. We were just starting to get the T1 connections on the universities. And uh, I used to watch what he did, if you will. I mean, I'd look at the newspapers when I was younger and look at the ticker symbols. And this is when we used fractions, not decimals. And there were certain symbols I'd look at in what he was trading. And, and he wasn't a big growth guy. He was more into the value type stocks, if you will. Um, he got a little bit into options as well. And that kind of just piqued my interest when I was younger. So when I got to college in the dot-com boom and I started seeing stocks such as AOL and Intel and Cisco, um, NVIDIA when it first came out, I was like, you know, I, I want to trade. I want to get into this and just see what it's about. And at the time, TD Ameritrade, I think, was just started maybe a couple years prior. And they were running a special where it was a $3,000 minimum investment to open an account. So I went to my father and said, hey, I, need, I, I think I, I thought, if I'm not mistaken, I think I needed a cosigner at the time. So I went to him and said, let's open an account, but I want full autonomy. I want to trade what I want. And I want to put about $5,000 into the account. And he said, all right. What were the transaction fees back then? You know, I think they were about $14, if I'm not mistaken, when it first started on both ends of the trade. So it wasn't terrible. But you got to remember, when my father was trading, some of his fees on, on both sides were over $200 a trade when he was going to the broker. So if, if, you were, if you had a small account, $200 in each end, I mean, that would really eat away at your profit. Um, me being in college, going in $5,000, $200 in each end would, would be killer if I'm trying mm -hmm. to trade. So $14 at the time was phenomenal. So I went in, opened the account, and I started trading. And it was myself, it was my roommates, it was friends we had on campus. Everybody seemed to be in it, which kind of reminds me of today's world where we have this Wall Street bets and everything that's going on with all the traders and, mm -hmm. and the millennials coming up and, and using Robinhood, if, if you will. And, and we just started trading. And no joke, I took that account from about $5,000 and I ran it up almost over 10x very quickly, wow. trading between classes. And I was immediately just hooked into what trading was at that point. Um, so kind of just to close the loop as far as my background, um, I became an architect after college, uh, practiced for about seven years, and then I made a transition to what I do today, stayed in the industry of real estate, but became an owner's representative. So what I do is I focus on project management, cost management, risk assessment, risk management, and project controls. And I represent the owner, uh, whether that be the client or a tenant going into a, a whatever it may be, an existing building, maybe a brand new ground up building, if you will. And we manage the design, the bid, um, the, and the construction and the close out of the project itself. So that's what I do. So I'm not a real estate agent. I know a few people online said, Hey, you, you, you do real estate sales, if you will, but that's not what I do. I do have a broker degree. I'm sorry. I do have a broker's license, but I don't practice real estate sales. If you will, it's purely project and cost management as I represent the actual client themselves as we go into construction. Um, so that's, that's what I do full-time. And then what I do part-time, I morph from that late 1990s, if you will, trading in the dot-com boom, ran my account up, well, 2000, mid-2000 to 2001 hit. And between you and I, I lost most of the money that was in my account. Because what I was doing mm -hmm. is every time the market dipped, I was trading stocks like Extreme Networks, um, AOL, Intel, as I mentioned, AMD was another stock early on, NVIDIA. Um, some mm -hmm. of the stocks are still around pretty hot today. Um, but I was trading them as they dipped, they'd go up, they dipped, they'd go up. And we're talking about big swings back then. I mean, we're looking at 30, 40, 50, 60% per day. Some of the stocks were going wow. up. Um, but when 2001 hit, when the dips came, they never went back up. 
and I kept buying and I kept buying. And before you knew it, my account was back to where it started. Um, so that was the end of those days. So I graduated college at that point and uh, lost most of my money. Fortunately, I was in college and I didn't have a substantial amount in the market, but it was a good life lesson as far as what could happen in the market when we get into a bubble. And it was right around 2002, 2003, when I kind of sat back and said, you know what? I actually want to learn how to truly invest at this point. I want to trade a little bit, but I want to learn how to invest. What, what just happened to my account? How did I run it up so easily? And then how did it just vaporize so easily? And that's when I started to study about the market. So I've been trading since 98. So it's over 20 years at this point, but I'd say I truly started to dive into the details of the market 2002 to 2003. Um, started reading a lot of books. I started subscribing to Investors Business Daily. I started subscribing mm -hmm. to Daily Graphs. Um, ironically, I got a big Daily Graphs 100-year chart on the wall back there behind me. Um, and then eventually, Daily Graphs became what's now, as we know, Market Smith, if you will. But mm -hmm. that, that's where I really started my education as far as how can I learn to get into growth stocks? How can I learn to kind of appreciate um, a small amount of money that I want to put into the market? And how do I protect myself from those massive losses that we had in 2000, 2001 and, and move forward from that point? So is your style still uh, reflective of uh, O'Neill or how is it? How is it uh... Every, exactly. Everything I do is rooted in, in more of a canceling type um, style of investing. I wouldn't say that I follow it to a T, but okay. a lot of what, what works within the O'Neill style is I'm looking at some fundamentals, but very basic fundamentals. I'm looking mm. at sales. I'm looking at earnings. And I'm looking at the growth of both sales and earnings over time. And then the third component that I wrap in today is institutional sponsorship. So I want to see what the funds are buying. And if they're, and if they're accumulating stocks Q over Q, that's a stock that I want to get involved with. And then I wrap in the technical analysis. I'm very basic when it comes to charts. I mean, a lot of people can get into a lot of indicators. I really mm -hmm. like to look at a daily chart, a weekly chart. Every once in a while, I'll zoom out to a monthly just to get a much better perspective of what, what's going on if we have some volatility on the uh, mm -hmm. closer charts. And I just use the moving averages of 50 day and a 200. And that really comes from O'Neill himself. A lot of people say, why don't you use a 30 week? Why do you use a 40 week? Why do you use a 200 day? How come you don't use 150 day? The 15, 200 really comes from O'Neill and a lot of stuff that I studied that he did back in the sixties and seventies. And I just incorporated into what really is comfortable for me. doesn't mean it's the right way, but it's just what works for me at this point. Hmm. So, so how did you go about developing uh, your own style uh, over time? Uh, was it a little bit from O'Neill, a little bit from somebody else? Uh, or uh, like, was it your own research or, or back testing? Uh, how did you come up well, with your, your rules and well, what types of things are you following now? Yeah, so not, not much back testing in any way. I mean, I, I messed around some software from time to time, but I can't give much credit to back testing, if you will. It was just mm -hmm. really reading the books of O'Neill, um, get into Weinstein, maybe Darvis, um, mm. um, eventually Mark Minavini, who was, was a disciple, uh, get into Market Wizards. And, and Market Wizards was, was a good series. The first couple of books that came out from Market Wizards, just to see what folks were doing from a trend trading standpoint versus a day trading standpoint versus trading other markets, whether it be commodities or currencies, or whatever it may be. And, and I just, I honed it on equities and said, you know, I'm very comfortable with equities and I'm very comfortable with looking at the trend itself. I'm, not, I'm probably never going to buy something at the bottom. I'll probably never get out at the top. But it's, right. it, I, I think in my mind, my opinion, it's fairly simple to identify a trend, whether it's up or down, or if you're just trading sideways. And if it's starting to move up and you're starting to gain momentum, get on the trend and actually just ride that trend. Um, now, how long do they go for? We don't know. I mean, that's, that's something none of us know. Right now here in 2021, a lot of people are screaming we're at the top of the market. There's a lot of people entering the market. A lot of people think we're seeing these topping signals. Maybe, but sometimes the market does the exact opposite of what we all think. So if everyone thinks it's topping, 
maybe we have another six months that's going to go a lot higher. I, I don't know, but you have to look for the signals, if you will, and then really kind of make your decisions based off those signals. So most of what I learned from that can slim development and, and how to make money in stocks, which is O'Neill's book, and mm-hmm. I have a couple different versions on that bookshelf behind me, it, it's, I'd say 90% of what I do today is still that. It's just really kind of focusing on what he did. The difference of what I did in the early, let's say late 90s to early 2000s, I was in and out a lot more. I did a lot more swing trading. Um, not really day trading, if you will, but swing trading from weeks to months, where what I think I try to do now is go from months to years. And in a growth account, maximum one to two years. I don't really hold stuff in the growth account longer than two years. Right now, Square and Tencent are really the only ones that I bought in 2019, if you will, that I'm still holding to this point. Um, and a couple of those, if, if they're going to stay in my portfolio over time, I'll, I'll start to kind of filter them out and say, they're really not my growth account anymore. It's more of a long-term hold. And then I'll, I'll get younger, more innovative companies that will kind of cycle into the growth account. And, and just to be clear here on the show and what I say on Twitter, I have investments outside of my growth account, but I only really focus pretty much 98% of the time on my growth account on Twitter. And part of the reasons for that is followers and, and eyeballs. That, that's what gets you followers and eyeballs. And if anyone says to you, they're not on Twitter for followers and eyeballs, they're, they're probably telling a little fib there. But uh, <laughs> we're all there. We all like to grow our, our followers and, and we all like to get our likes and, and, and retweets and all that. But it's really what the action is. If, if I was talking about Apple, Amazon, Johnson & Johnson, and my Walmart holdings every day, I probably wouldn't have much interest from folks. Mm. So how, how much time are you spending? Like, like if you, a common question that, that I get a, a lot to is about if you're trading part-time, like what, what type of time commitment are, are you doing it? Well, when are you right. doing uh, the work? And uh, like, when are you, uh, like, how do you manage that part of it? Sure. Sure. So I do work full-time during the day for the most part, business hours, if you will. It's, it's, it's a flexible industry what I'm in. So, so I can kind of balance and go back and forth if I need to. And with, mm-hmm. with the smartphone on, in my pocket, I mean, I, I can get alerts. I can make decisions if I have to midday. I try not to though. I try to go more of that Nicholas Darvis approach where, you know what, I don't need to see the market during the day and I don't just need to see the market every single day. And there are times even on Twitter, I'll go quiet for a few days just because I'm busy elsewhere and I can't really focus on the market. I can't really put some tweets out. And then there's other times I might put 15 tweets out in one day just because maybe I'm less busy elsewhere. It's really aftermarket quotes. I don't need to see the, the, the mm-hmm. stocks during the day. And there's a lot of noise during the day. There's a lot of program trading when the market opens, a lot of program trading when the market closes in, in the first hour and the last hour. And there's a lot of dullness during the day. You really just want to see where the, where the stocks are at the end of the day. More importantly, the end of the week, I do most of my study during the weekend. I'll sit down on a Saturday morning. Kids are doing what they're doing. The wife's doing what she's doing. I'll take a couple hours and I'll just go through a lot of charts and I'll go through a lot of fundamentals just to say, and when, when I say go through it, it's going through the screens. I have certain screens that I've set up within MarketSmith and, and, and I'm, I don't have any sponsorship with MarketSmith. It's just a, a certain product that I use that I just really enjoy and it does what I need it to do based off a lot of that can slim, if you will. It's built into a lot of their screens and I'm looking for certain indicators to say maybe a stock should be going on my watch list. Maybe I should be purchasing the stock. Maybe a company I own, the sales are starting to slow. Maybe I should start thinking about getting out of it and, and going to cash or moving that money elsewhere, if you will. Um, but it's late at night, usually after nine o'clock, if the kids go to bed. So I have an 11-year-old and a seven-year-old. So typically they're going to bed in that nine o'clock hour, if you will. Once they go to sleep, and if, if, if I'm not doing something with my wife, I'll, I'll log on, spend an hour or so. And that's usually when I'll tweet out some information. And, and one good thing about Twitter nowadays is you can schedule your tweets. So a lot of times I'll do work late at night and schedule tweets at certain times and just shoot the stuff out, unless it's a live tweet. If I see something like today, I did a quick Uber tweet, 
Uber had a purchase today of a company that's going to be, I guess, uh, delivering alcohol door to door. So the stock was up between six and eight percent. I did a quick tweet and said, eh, you know, it's, it's working out fairly well. But most of my research comes after the market at nighttime, end of the day, uh, but more predominantly on the weekend, if you will. And I, and I only need a couple hours a week to really see what I'm doing. If I miss a couple of days or even a miss a week, it's, it's, it's not a killer for what I do, which is a little bit more longer term investment, if you will. So, so Uber it, it has uh, a liquor deal going on. How did you find out about that? Like, well, was that some? Uh, that's not something that you could screen for in MarketSmith, right? Like, they don't have like a liquor screen, do they? <laughs> no, no. So actually, believe <laughs> it or not, across that one yet. My my newsfeed is Twitter, so it's who I follow okay. as well. So I follow a lot of great accounts. Um, you're one of them, of course, and that's not. Oh, thank you blow your head up there. But uh, no, there's a lot of good accounts on Twitter. I get a lot of my information um, from folks on Twitter, whether it be traditional media or just mm-hmm. kind of just folks that have just really good streams, if you will. I don't subscribe to any other newspapers. Um, I don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Now, do I read those sites? Of course I do if articles come up. But but I look at Twitter and, and if, unfortunately, you have to filter out a lot of the quote unquote fake news that's out there. Mm. And, and I'm just talking about stock fake news. I don't want to get into politics, but just what is real, what's not real. And, and, and if you have some really reliable sources, there's information that will come through. So I saw something come through early this morning and then I went in, logged in so that it was up for the day. I'm like, oh, you know, I'll make a quick tweet about this. And that was in the middle of actually out in my driveway with 21 inches of snow and snow blowing the snow off the driveway. It's like, oh, look at this. Uber's up 8%. And it was a nice little thing. Yeah, that, that, that's a really great way to, to get information, too. A, a, a question there that just kind of struck me, and I forget well, where I've heard this from, but I've heard this uh, many times before. Well, when everybody's saying the same thing, that the market tends to go the other way, right? Like when everybody's kind of leaning on one side of the boat, you tend to fall over. With a curated feed, do you feel that that is can be similar or is it, oh, this is the good information. And if everybody's saying it, then that's something that would give, that would give you more confidence. So it's a double-edged sword. And I look at it two ways. And what I've noticed is my audience has grown over the last years or so. And during COVID, my audience grew rapidly. I mean, I had maybe five, 10,000 followers and then COVID hit and, and my account exploded. And it's, I don't know, 60,000 or so followers at this point. And then people I'm following has also grown as well. A lot of times you get a lot of folks that I follow or people follow me are all in the same boat, all buying the same stocks. And it does seem on FinTwit, you got a group of about 20 or 30 stocks and everybody is buying the exact same symbols over and over. Um, in, one account, in one case, that's good, but, but I discount that a little bit. I really, I'm, I'm looking at the funds. What are the funds really buying? One of the best screens I run is the number of funds that are in a stock, but then the percentage of increase Q over Q of how many more funds are going into that stock going forward. And if you mm-hmm. want to dive down deeper, you, you can get into the details and the SEC documents, or you can go to Hedgemine or, 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 or some other sites that will give you and say, okay, yes, 10 new funds bought this company last quarter, but this is how many shares they actually purchased. Because that's a little bit more important than the number of funds is how many shares were purchased versus how many were, were sold. But you look at the sentiment on FinTwit as well and see, does it align? And, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but on the flip side, there's, there's trolls on, on FinTwit, if you will. I'll block anyone that's just going to be a, a jerk, if you will. And I just don't want to deal with them. I, I'm too busy and I don't want to deal with people that are just going to argue all day long. I'm from New York. I love to mix it up. I love to rile people up at times as well. I love to, to, to get on some people's uh, nerves from time to time as well. So I respect that. But there's a number of folks that do follow me that challenge a lot of what, what I do as well. Why did mm-hmm. you go in that stock? Why, did, why do you believe this is, like even today, just Uber. I had somebody said, 
hey, Uber hasn't made any money since day one. Why are you in that stock? That was one of my comments. And I just said, well, it's positions up 76% since I bought it. So it's working. And there's different reasons why I own that stock versus maybe I know own a growth stock that actually is increasing sales, maybe 60% Q over Q for the last few quarters. And that's not Uber, if you will. Maybe sales are, but not their, their profitability. Uber, I see as a brand. And one thing I've started to learn later in life and probably in the last few years, brands tend to do really well, strong brands, regardless of where their profitability is. Um, if you look at an Amazon, you look at a Tesla, I mean, these companies were not profitable for a, more than a decade each, if you will. And, and, but the stocks have gone on to 100x runs, if, if, if you will. So Uber, based on the size, I don't think it's going to do 100x run, but could it do a 5x, 10x? Maybe it can, because it's just one of those big brands that people are going to use. It's a company that's well capitalized, and it's a company that can make acquisitions like they did today that can expand their services that eventually makes them profitable in the future. So I'm looking at growth stocks, and I'm also looking at brands. So when I say brands, and I, I call them verb stocks, Uber is a verb stock. I'm Uber mm. into the restaurant and, and people have corrected me on Twitter. I, I use it as a noun. Sometimes I'm going to take an Uber, which is more of a noun, but, but yeah, if you look at Uber, you look at an Airbnb, um, you look at a Peloton now. I mean, th these, these are brands, major brands. And I'm, and I'm not making a recommendation for any of these stocks for anyone to buy on this show or on online, but I, I just, I believe in the brands that they're going to stick around a lot longer than a, a, a fly by night company, if you will. So what would be some of the signals uh, that would, cause you to exit well one of these trades are you following the classic can slim rules or like selling below the 50 day or, or like oh, what types of things well what other kinds of rules do you follow right so one one thing i used to do so this is a, a good thing to kind of circle back to what we talked about earlier when in the early 2000s i used a very hard stop whether it be seven eight or ten percent and that okay. was a hard can slim rule i got shaken out of a lot of stocks that went on to maybe double up or triple up over time and just being younger back then, I was just, I was perception wise in my mind, I couldn't get back into the stock when I sold it at 30 and now had to rebuy at 40. That's not a problem for me anymore. I, I, if, if, if I see a stock at hundred, I miss it, but then it pulls back, forms a nice base at 200. I'll jump in at 200. Trade mm -hmm. desk is a great example from last year that I bought it at $171 a share. Um, I saw the stock probably $80 cheaper. Originally just didn't buy it, but I had no problem during the, the COVID correction to get in at that point, buy it. And now we all see what it's done. I think it's up over 800 again today. And I think it peaked about 900 um, late last year. Um, for me to sell it, there's a couple things. If, if sales start to slow and they go below a certain point, if you will. So if a company's doing 30% year over year, I'm sorry, Q over Q um, sales growth, and then it drops to 20, then maybe drops to 18. That's a signal right there that I probably should start to get out. But looking at the chart as well, is it violating the 50 day? And it's not an automatic sell for me if it violates the 50 day. Um, by the time it gets back to the 200, you might be a little late and a lot of your gains are probably gone at that point, but it's more so how does it act when it gets closer to the 200 day? Does it catch support or does it break down on, on, on larger than average volume, both on a daily standpoint and from a weekly standpoint? And that's when I'll usually start to cut a stock. This market is unique. Valuations is always something that, that I've always used in the past. When a stock starts to get overvalued, it's probably time to start trimming the company, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at my growth portfolio right now, I'd say probably 90% of them are overvalued beyond what I'd, I'd ever consider 10 years ago. It's just a different market, but I, I need to be also careful at the same time because this party will end. Once the Fed stops pumping money into the market, I think these valuations will come back to, come back to the real world. And a lot of these stocks are going to correct very hard. When? I don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could be next year. It could be three years from now. I, I, I don't actually know. But it's just something that I just need to be aware of. And I think people in the market need to be aware of. Some of these companies are trading at 50, 60, 70 times sales, 
historically, that's not normal. For a brief period of time, maybe you do that, but you can't do that for several years in a row. Eventually, the stock price has to come back to some normalcy of what our historical terms have been for the last hundred or some odd years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, earlier, you had mentioned uh, that there's some decisions that you make intraday. Uh, what are some of those types of decisions that you need to make intraday? So it's fewer and fewer as I get older to make an intraday decision. Okay. Um, but, but doing my research over the weekend, if you will, I, I'll, I'll make a list and say, okay, here are maybe two or three stocks that might be on the hot seat. And then I'll set alerts through my broker. That will be a text message right to my phone. If I get an alert where it violates a certain level where I think it's breaking down, I'll make that decision intraday then to sell immediately right over my phone. I mean, I won't log into a computer. I'll just sell it immediately over my phone. Um, it's usually, but it's, it's usually premeditated as far as how I'm going to make those decisions. I don't want to panic, panic during the middle of the day. I mean, if you go back over the last six months, there's been a lot of instances, late August, late September, late October, a lot of stocks were very volatile and we had some big swings up and down and a lot of people were selling or, and or buying back and forth where I kind of just sat tight and I kind of looked at end of day data uh, during the nighttime over the weekend. So, okay, here are the stocks I own. Here's maybe one or two that are starting to get close to maybe violating what I think is is, is, is a, maybe a key trend line or a key support line, key moving average, if you will. And if mm -hmm. it does this during the day, I want to take a look at it. I'll have an alert sent to me and then make that decision on the fly. Um, but based off of mapping that out prior, I won't just get an alert and just say, oh, this, this is now below 50 day. I'm going to sell right now without looking at daily and weekly charts prior, if you will. Um, I got caught, what was it? I think it was, so last year was COVID. So it was probably 2019. Um, Stone Company, STNE. Um, mm. is, is a great company. Yeah. It's had a great run. I was in it. I was in Disney in, in, in uh, Disney World with my family in April of, I, I want to say it was 2019. And the stock had gone from like maybe 22 to like 45. And I was sitting pretty, went on vacation. Sometimes if I'm a little nervous, I'll set a hard stop for on vacation if I know I'm not going to have access to a phone. And I think maybe something might be vulnerable. Went on that vacation. I did not have any hard stops. But I knew in my mind, if a stock did something, maybe I need to get out or maybe I'll even buy at that point. But on vacation, I try not to make any moves. Um, Stone got a report came out. I think the earnings got hit and the stock got crushed. And I think it was down like 30, 35% immediately. And I was caught in it and there was nothing I could do. And I couldn't make an intraday. I was at a park somewhere and I came back and I looked, I'm like, oh, what the hell happened to my portfolio today? And I looked at that stock and it was a decent holding at the time and, and I got crushed and I, and I got hit and it does happen at times. Um, Something I've tried to learn over the years is patience. If you truly believe in, in what you're doing with your research and you think a company has a long runway, you're going to have these volatile swings with growth stocks. And if you go back to the turtle traders or some of the big trend traders of, of past days, you have to be able to withstand maybe a 20, 30, or 40% drawdown in some of these stocks in order to get the three, four, or five X run. Much easier said than done. Um, I did eventually sell stone and I sold it when COVID came out because I thought Brazil was going to get hit really hard. And I thought the merchant payments in Brazil were going to take a big hit. I was completely wrong. I basically sold near the low in the low twenties and the stock was over 70 as of last week. And, and I missed that entire run. So there, there are times where I make mistakes or I get caught in a stock way down, or there's times where I think a stock is going to go down. I sell and then it goes up and I was wrong, which, which happens. I mean, as you know, as traders, we're, we're all wrong probably more times than we're right. It's just, you got to capitalize on the times when you're actually right. Chris yeah, that, that. jumped in right there. I know. Um, how do you pick yourself up after a loss like that, especially when you're with the family or at Disney? Like, how do you kind of like say, okay, you know what? I lost this one. I'm going to get the next one. You know, I'm going to learn from this. Like, how do you get through that kind of loss? 
so I don't know if this is a cheesy answer, but I think age. I've just become, uh, I guess, more patient, which has taken the losses with age. If I went back 10, 15 years ago, it would drive me nuts. And, and I also play poker. I'd say it put me on tilt a little bit. And I'd want to make that money back quickly. And I'd want to make it back either with that same stock or a different stock because I'd be upset and angry that I lost. And, and I think back then it was more about keeping score for me. How many wins versus how many losses? And I think it, it was over time. And, and I went to a stock twits convention out in San Diego years ago. And I met a, a stock psychologist that works with a lot of hedge funds. And he was out there. And we went out to dinner. We were sitting next to each other. And I just got to talking to him a little bit. And he kind of just kind of went into that world of how to accept losses, how to be at peace with yourself, and, and just understand it's part of the game. And I think it's just more with age. As I've gotten older, and I'm, I'm not that old, but I'll be 43 this year. I think over the last 10 years, I've just gotten a lot more patient to say, okay, I'm going to have my losses. You just accept them and move on at this point. And, and, and losses come in two forms. Losses where you actually have a true loss on your P&L, and you, you, you buy stock at 20, and it drops to 15, and you take your loss. Or you have your losses where you own something, maybe it goes up a little bit, you get out because you don't think it's going to run, or maybe it goes down a little bit, you take a small loss. And then before you know it, it's up 100% and you miss the entire run. That actually still bothers me more than the actual losses in my account is if I buy something, maybe get out, and then it goes on to run without me because I'm like, I had the idea. I, I, had, I thought I had conviction in the company, but then I lost that conviction, sold it, and then it went on to do what I thought it was going to do. Um, so I think just with age, I, I've just come to accept it a little bit better over time. And I think as I get older, they, they, they don't hurt like deep down as much as they used to. But certainly in the past, it, it would put me on tilt and make me do some 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 silly stuff. That is, you brought back flashbacks uh, of my honeymoon. <laughs> well, with that story, uh, very similar situation with silver uh, back in uh, 2010, <laughs> and it was uh, like. Um, uh, like like it no 2011 it, it had just not like uh, plummeted and well like so we're getting ready for for the wedding and oh silver was up maybe about uh, like 60 70 percent from uh from where i bought it and it was uh, like one of those things just uh, like yeah that the, this is amazing uh, like kind of like all the stars starting to align well we go on the honeymoon and I've forgotten to set a stop loss uh, as well. My mind's not on silver. My mind is on uh, having a, a great time uh, with my beautiful bride. And we come back two weeks later and 70% turned into about 7%. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that hurts. And, but it, it's something that we can come back from. And uh, you obviously have, uh, I obviously have, if you could tell your younger self some of the lessons that you've learned, like how would you encourage a younger version of you? It's patient. Uh, I think it would be patience. And, and I'm going to give another example. Um, going back to 2018, part of what I do in my career, I'm always working with, with big companies, whether they be Fortune 500 companies, up-and-coming companies. And typically when a company's starting to expand with their products, their services, their revenues are going up, they're looking for larger headquarters. And that, that's what we manage. That's what I do for a living is, is I'm, I'm brought on board to kind of be their trusted advisor, advocate to kind of go out there, hire the architect, hire the engineer, hire all the other ancillary consultants, build the team, 
put the documents together, put them out to bid, um, get our permits, and then we go and construct the facility, if you will. And it, like I said, it can go into an existing facility, a building, if you will, or it could be a pile of dirt. Um, we'll take buildings out of the ground as well. So oftentimes I get to see when companies are looking to expand and they're going to do something really big. And there's two examples. One is Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. In 2009, myself and my firm went in and we did a pitch and they were going to be expanding on their campus in Tarrytown, New York. Well, we go in, we win and we get awarded the job. I start working there in January of 2010 and I start to see the master plan of what they're going to do. Now, some companies will make me sign a document that says if I'm going to trade in their stock, if it's a public company, I need to disclose that and maybe I can't talk about it. At the time, Regeneron didn't do that to me, but I didn't talk about it much online because I was so heavily involved with what they were doing on their campus. And I knew they had this ILEA drug that was gonna to come to market at some point if it got approval. For 20 years, the stock traded between 10 and 25. And at that time in early 2010, it was trading in the low 20s. Um, long story short, we start building multiple buildings on the campus. We start renovating existing buildings and we do over half a million square feet over a five-year period. And they become one of the largest employers in Westchester, Westchester County, New York. Well, what did you know? The stock gets approved. And, and I'm sorry, the, the drug gets approved. And the stock runs from 25 to 600 over five-year period. And I'm on campus two to three days a week every single day during those five years as one of my biggest clients. Um, so it was amazing to kind of see that happen. Naturally, the first question, did you buy it at 25? No, I didn't. I did buy, but I didn't buy at 25. I bought a little bit higher, but then I got a big piece of that run but I saw it firsthand. Fast forward to 2018, I'm sitting in Morris Plains, New Jersey, and I'm pitching another client. And I'm, I'm there with the architect and the engineer in my firm. And, and the company's called Immunomedics. And IMMU is the ticker symbol. And we go through the pitch and they explain to us what they're doing and this new breast cancer drug that they have coming to market. And they, they need all these brand new facilities built. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, this is Regeneron all over again. I need to buy the stock. So literally I go to the parking lot. I look the company up. It's trading at $9 and change. And I'm talking to my coworker. I'm like, I think we should buy this stock. I think this, this company has a bright future. Um, and I'm going to get back to the, the question that you asked. And uh, so eventually, I think a couple of days later, I go and I buy the stock just shy of $10 a share. The stock runs to $27 within the next several months. And, and I'm sitting there with a big profit. Um, they go to the FDA to get approval. Time comes when they're going to get approval and they get rejected. And the stock gets crushed. And that $27 stock is now back to 12 bucks a share. So I'm looking at a $10 cost basis and I actually started to, actually, I should say my cost basis went up over time because I started buying more shares over time, but I had this cost basis that started below 10 and then started to increase over time as the stock went all the way up to 27. I'm sitting in a very healthy, profitable position and literally overnight it gets crushed and it's back down in the low teens again. Um, I did sit in it learning some, some lessons from the past that sometimes they'll rebound and bounce back. Stock bounced back to about 18. I cut, my, I, I cut out, got out, made my profit and said, I'm done with this company. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. They've never brought a drug to market. They're never going to make this work. Little did I know, they went ahead, they fired the CEO, they bring in another uh, industry veteran. He comes in, he kind of reorganizes everything. My mistake here, and this goes back to the patience, this is what I would tell my younger self, is have some more patience and have that conviction. That's what I try to do with a lot of my positions now. If you tru truly believe in the story and you think it's going to pan out, is he came in and they didn't fail because of the drug. They failed because of the facilities. And, and by the way, my firm didn't get hired, which is, this is kind of a little sweet story because I think if we did, maybe their facilities would be a little bit better. Their facilities actually failed the FDA inspection. So it wasn't the drug that was the issue. It was their facilities that was really the issue. Now they had to get back on the docket. It was going to take more than a year to kind of get back there. I lost my patience, sold out. Well, 2020, they got bought out for $88 a share. 
And you remember I was in below 10 bucks a share for my initial buy, but I lost my patience and I didn't get that full run. I sold at 18 thinking I was great with maybe like a 60% gain with my cost basis, hundred percent gain from my original buy, but the stock went 10 X from where I initially bought and, and, and it, but it took a couple of years. So from 2018 to 2020, it took two years for them to fix that company and eventually come to market. And I think to this day, They've, they have a, pre, a preliminary um, approval from the FDA, but their drug is not on the market yet. So they're not profitable, but now they've been purchased by a much larger pharmaceutical company. So what I tell my younger self is, and what I try to do now, so hopefully 20 years from now, I can say, oh, I finally learned that lesson. Be patient and have some conviction in your positions and, and learn to kind of ride those, tr- those, those waves of volatility that are going to happen. Don't just sell because some bad news comes out. Um, one, one last, I guess, example I can give you is, is Teladoc which is now my largest holding in my growth account, Amazon announced that they're, they're going to come into the market and they're going to compete against Teladoc and anyone else that's doing what they're doing with telemedicine and they're going to come to that market. And, and traditionally, Amazon usually crushes a lot of their competition. But if you kind of get rid of the noise for a minute and you go back and look, Amazon's tried to enter probably 20 different markets and they fail at more than half of them. And you have to understand that Teladoc is really the leader at this point and they just bought a much stronger company in Livongo, which was a great holding for me last year and say, is this just noise and the stock jumped down probably maybe 15% or is this an opportunity to buy more shares and, 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 and strengthen your conviction in the stock itself? That day it dropped down to the low one eighties. I bought more shares right now. We're trading up, I don't know, mid two hundreds, if you will. And, and the stock's going to be volatile going forward, but it's that lesson to say, have that conviction. If you've done your proper due diligence, you understand the fundamentals, you understand the market the company's in and you understand the runway the company may have going forward you look at the market cap today and what do you think the company may get to, we can kind of translate into what you think the return is going to be on the stock. And you hold, you hold through those drawdowns. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And that's, that's where you have to be careful is I'm a discretionary trader. I don't program trade. I don't have a system that trades for me. I, I kind of, it's discretionary in this growth account, if you will. And it's, I do my research fundamentally. Then I kind of look at the charts technically and I look where I really want to get in. And then I kind of roll with it from that point. And, 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 Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So as I've given a few examples today, sometimes I sell too soon. Sometimes maybe I sell too late and I'll take a much larger loss. Um, I had a couple of losses last year in 2020, which was a great year where, where luck and coffee, it was a fraud company at the end of the day, but I took a big loss and maybe some signals were there before I made my sell, but I had to take a loss a lot lower than I wanted to because the bad news had come out and I was still there holding my shares because I didn't have any hard stops in. So it, it does happen. But if you have a couple of really big winners in your portfolio every year, it wipes away all those losers and then some. So it's really, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. I think with trend following and trend trading, you're going to have a couple of stocks that are going to go up four, five, six X. And then you're going to have a basket of, or, or, or a handful of stocks that are going to give you losses, but, but they take care of themselves. Yes, that's one of the key rules uh, of trend following. You you need to have your your winners pay for your losers. So keep mm-hmm. the uh, the losers as small as possible and allow the the winners to run. Hundred percent. What what kind of principles? Well, we were going to talk about uh, crypto as well. Uh, what what kind of principles do you apply to the crypto markets? So I only well I own a small amount of Ethereum, but it's not substantial enough, so I don't talk about it often. And I just bought mm-hmm. a mining company that's involved with Ethereum. And it's the latest add to my portfolio. It's only a couple percent allocation. So it's still small at this point, but that, that's a little bit more of my play there. And, and some people have asked me, hey, this doesn't really fit your portfolio. Why did you buy Hive? And it's just, it's more of a mine and play for Ethereum. And, and maybe I'll buy more Ethereum going forward. But my main focus has been Bitcoin. 
Um, Bitcoin, the way I term it, and I've said this since the day I bought it and even before I bought it, and I get this from Naval Ravikant, it's more of my asymmetric play. It's to say, okay, I went to my wife, I sat down and said, hey, I want to put X number of dollars into what's called Bitcoin. Here's what I believe Bitcoin is. And I think everyone has a different opinion on what Bitcoin is. And I don't think anyone really truly knows what Bitcoin is at this point from a definition standpoint. Is it a currency? Um, is it a, a, a store value? Um, is it something else that we're not aware of at this point? Who knows? My definition of why I went into it is because I see it as trying to become a store value over time. It's very volatile today. It's, it's, it, and it has been for the past decade. Now, it's been the best performing asset, if you want to call it an asset at this point, over the past decade. Um, but I see it as a store of value as not competition to the U.S. dollar and not competition to the euro or any other national currency, but more as competition to gold and some of your traditional hard metal commodities, if you will. Or where can I store my money um, where it's a little bit more fungible, it's a little bit more transportable, it's, it's digital, if you will. So I don't have to physically store gold somewhere in a safe safety deposit box, in a safe in my house or wherever it may be. I could put it on a USB stick. I can put it into cold storage on a cloud uh, through my broker, if you will, which is where I store my Bitcoin at this point. And I see it as a store of value that eventually will kind of stabilize with some of the volatility, but because of its fixed supply, I have a feeling, and, and I think it's starting to pan out at this point, um, that there's gonna be a high demand for it and it has a fixed amount of supply. And once institutional investors and once corporate individuals start to get involved with it and perhaps even governments, with that fixed supply, I think it's gonna drive the price up substantially over the coming years. And so I started, so I initially bought a little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of Ethereum in 2017, when you had all that hype that was going on. And I bought it on the way up in the fall of 2017. And then we all know it all plunged and it came down 90%, if you will. Mm -hmm. I didn't touch it in 2018. And it wasn't until the summer of 2019, um, after I'd listened to, I read a book um, by Ben Mesrick about the Winklevoss twins. And then I, I listened to a couple podcasts. Nick Zabo was one of them, Naval Ravikant, and there was a few others that I listened to and had read online as far as what they truly thought Bitcoin could become and what it was at this point. And it was still in the first inning of the game of what we think maybe Bitcoin becomes in the future. Um, and that's when I started accumulating my coins at that point and buying the coins direct. So I own the coins. They're stored through the Gemini, Gemini platform in their cold storage. So I made multiple buys between July of 2019 and December 19. My best buy was actually December at about 6,600 and change. And, and that was the, the last coin that I bought at that price. Um, and now I've been holding. I have made no transactions in 2020 and no transactions in 2021. I'm just holding Bitcoin based off of my cost basis, which is a little bit over $8,000 a coin. So at this point, it's up over 300% since I bought it. So you'd say, so far, the investment's working out. Um, there's been some criticism on my account. So you, you, you have this cult, if you will, of Bitcoin. I try not to think of myself as part of that cult. It's an investment that I have. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't, just like any other stock. Um, do I think Bitcoin's going to fail? I don't personally think it's going to fail. Do I, am I smart enough to believe that perhaps it could? Yes. And that's why I called that asymmetric bet where I took a portion of my net worth, put it into Bitcoin and said, all right, said to my wife, if I lose this, if we lose this together, will it affect our lives? Yeah, it's going to hurt. It's, it, it was enough money where it's going to hurt us, but it just deep down personally, but it's not going to hurt us in the overall scheme of, of what we have going on between our income, our assets, our investments, our real estate, all that kind of stuff. But if this thing goes 10x, 20x, 30x, I don't want to be sitting here in five years and say I missed one of the biggest runs of an asset in the history of our lives because I didn't put some money into it. So that's the play I've taken about on. And the definition I see is it's really a hedge against the deflating of the dollar. 
So I look at it more as a store of value or eventually becoming a store of value over time. Is it a store of value today? I, I guess that's a debate anybody can have. I'm not going to say it is or it isn't. That's how I perceive it at this point. It's trying to become a store of value to kind of insure yourself against the deflation of the dollar. And the more money the Fed prints and the more money every other government around the world prints, the more I think folks are going to gravitate towards some of these assets, if you will. So that's my play on crypto and Bitcoin. But it's, uh, it's a very electric uh, environment out in, in, in FinTwit if you, if you talk about Bitcoin. You, you basically have a line right down the middle. You have your people that love it and you have your people you hate it and they, and they just like to fight with each other. And I think hmm. that's dumb. I, I think it's really dumb. I think it's, hey, it's an investment like any other stock. Either you like it, you don't, you put money on it, you don't put money on it, end of the day. It's, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. Your P&L at the end of the day will tell you if, if it works out. And right now, anybody that bought Bitcoin in 2019 is up. And actually, technically, anyone that bought Bitcoin before um, 20, uh, before the peak at late last year is showing a profit at this point because the peak was traditionally 19,000 and now we're trading up near 35,000. So every person that bought Bitcoin prior to that last peak is now in the black. So the investment's working at this point. And do I think it's going to become a currency? I, I, my personal opinion is no, I don't think it's going to become a currency. I think you'll be able to transact with things in it, but I think there's going to be other tokens, other coins that may be built on the back of Bitcoin that really becomes the transactional piece of it. I don't think Bitcoin itself is going to become a currency, but that's my opinion. And I could be wrong there as well. We'll see. Hmm. So, well, when you're, you were, you were on the actual coin. Well, well, what's your opinion on some of the, the ETFs or, or maybe purchasing it through through a, a broker like Robinhood where you don't actually own the, the right. coin? It, well, what are your feelings on so, that? And, and I say this cautiously because I have some friends that are investors in Robinhood. I don't like what's going on with Robinhood. I don't know all the details either. We'll see how it flushes out. I have none of my money in Robinhood. So I'm kind of just a bystander on the side. Whether you're in Robinhood or any other account where you don't physically own it and you're trying to just trade in it, if, if, if your sole goal is just to trade it, just understand when you buy it through some of those brokers, you don't own the physical coin and you're just trading it for, for profit or loss at that point. But if you know that going into it, then it's fine. But if you go into a Robinhood and, and you're buying your cryptocurrency, and again, I don't, I don't have an account there, so I don't know all the details. If you don't truly own the coin itself, if a company like Robinhood is, they lose the liquidity and they go out of business, you're probably not insured for your Bitcoin. You might be, you're most likely insured because of your equities. I mean, most people should be insured up to $500,000 of equities they own um, through the U.S. government or whatever whatever uh, branch that actually insures that. I don't think it's FDIC. It's something else. But I think you're insured there. But you might not be insured through your cryptocurrencies because it's, it's, it's a separate asset, if you will. So I would just double check on what the rules, the regs, and insurances are through those types of brokerages if you have your money there. Um, I prefer to own the coin myself, and I prefer to have the option. If I need to take it offline, I can. I literally can take it offline and store it in a safety deposit box or store it in my house if I want on a USB stick that is completely offline. And I know those are my coins, if you will, um, in my own personal wallet uh, or my own personal stick. If you go GBTC, which is more like an ETF for, for Bitcoin, I use that to swing trade from time to time. So if I see things are getting volatile and I think something's dipping and maybe it's going to jump up 20 or 30%, I've done it multiple times over the last year. Well, I'll actually buy it through my brokerage account as a stock, if you will, and then just trade it that way because transactional fees for buying and selling Bitcoin itself on the main exchanges, they're not cheap. I mean, it's, it's, it's a percent of what you buy. So if you're buying $10,000 worth of Bitcoin, you're, you're paying a nice little fee there to buy it. So if you want to trade the stock with no commission, I think trading it through GBTC is, is the way to go at that point. 
but also know there's a premium put on GBTC because Grayscale is the one that owns the Bitcoin behind the scenes and they're charging the investor a premium in order for them to own that and then trade it as an ETF on the market. Now it's built into the price. So it's not like it hits your account personally, but it's the way that price fluctuates and it doesn't follow Bitcoin one-to-one, either up or down. Um, but I think they're very useful tools for somebody to trade that doesn't want to maybe get into the Bitcoin world. One problem with Bitcoin right now is it's still like the wild, wild west. When you buy it and if you have a coin, will you keep it in cold storage online or you take it offline? There's a million questions as far as what could happen. Can it get stolen? Can it get lost? How do I use it? How do I get back on? A lot of things that people still can't answer fully. I know some people that are really involved in it can, but your, your everyday average person like us, we can't answer all those questions yet. Where when I buy an equity on TD Ameritrade, I know exactly what's going on. I know when I bought it. I know what I'm insured for. I know how I can sell it, how I can get rid of it. it it's very straightforward. It's very, it's very regulated um, and it's fully insured. Bitcoin's not fully there yet. And I don't think any of the cryptocurrencies are. And I think what, what, what detracts from Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum, you have all these, what I call, and i sorry for the language, all these shit coins out there. And you have all these joke of coins and people are going in there and they're speculating. And I think 99% of them are a complete joke and I wouldn't put any of my money in any of them, even, even just to speculate. It's just, to me, it's not worth it. I think you stick with the ones that are, 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 are going institutional at this point, the ones that have stood the test of time. Bitcoin's 12 years old this year. So you start to get into that Nassim Taleb Lindy effect, the longer it sticks around, or the longer it's been around is the longer it's going to stick around going forward. So I, I think there'll be full adoption there. Um, but there's going to be a lot of volatility. And if you look at Bitcoin, it follows a four-year cycle. So it usually runs up and then it takes a, a significant hit. So if you own Bitcoin right now, it's, it's right now it's in the run-up. I mean, it was, it was below $10,000 a coin just six months ago. And now we're up over $30,000 a coin. It hit 40 recently and it, it's, it's basin right now. But the coin might run to 100,000. I don't know if it will or it won't, but when it gets there, it's probably going to take a 50% hit. And I think people that own it just need to be prepared for that. And it goes back to the patience. If you're playing the long game and you think Bitcoin's going to become worth 200 or 300 or $500,000 in the future, well, you're going to have to sit there and, and sit through some large, substantial drawdowns. And, and, and can you mentally and physically in your gut take those drawdowns at that point? And also know on the outside chance that is that, is that the final say? is that drawdown, the drawdown that's going to take it to zero. Um, I personally don't think it's going to do that, but I think we're going to have some big drawdowns going forward as it continues to go up in value. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate you being on here, Chris. I, I want to get to some of the, the questions in the Q&A that people have been patiently waiting for. Sure. Um, Melissa, well, well, what questions do we have from the audience? Uh, we have a bunch, but I just wanted to quickly add, Chris, I love that you had that conversation about Bitcoin with your wife. I love that communication. And uh, before making any big decision like that, making sure that you both were on the same page, I think that is crucial, especially whether you're a part-time or full-time trader uh, and you, you, have, you have a family and uh, just being able to keep that communication open. I think that's wonderful. Big, okay, big, so big, big, yeah, big thing with family. It's a lot. My trades that I make in my growth account, I pretty much make them on my own. Every once in a while, I kind of just give her an update what's going on. She's not very interested just because stocks aren't her thing. But she'll want to know every once in a while, hey, how's the account doing? What are you up to? What have you been buying? My son, as he gets older, is a little bit into it. But when it came to Bitcoin, it was different because it was a separate account and I was taking money out of our savings to buy it. I wasn't taking it out of my stock account. So I was taking a chunk of change and saying, hey, I want to take this money and I want to make this investment. And I tried to explain to her the best I could what my thoughts were around it. And at the end of the day, if she said no, I probably would not have bought it because we're a team, we're partners. But um, I made the case, I guess I sold it to her, if you will, sold the idea of, hey, 
I think it could do this over time. But if it doesn't, this is what our loss is going to be. Are you okay with that? And, and I was more than happy that she said, listen, I, I trust that you've done, you have a track record, make the investment. She's like, you know, it's one of those things we live once. And, and, you know, if, 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 if we have a loss, yeah, it's not, it's not going to crush our family. It's going to hurt because it's a chunk of change. But I, I think if in five years you don't make this investment, it does what you think it's going to do. That's going to hurt you even more. And, and that, that was, that was simply that, that was the conversation. I love it. I agree. Right, so I love right it in. too. Oh, sorry, Mike. Yeah, yeah no, I, I love that too. I, I think that, that that's a great, uh, like everybody that that's, you need to have your, your family, you need to have your, your team, your significant other on board. Uh, if you, if you have one, whoever's close to you. Yeah. Like, I, I think that that's well, one of, one of the things uh, that, uh, some traders uh, just, they forget about yeah. uh, when they're doing the, these kinds of things. Uh, having sure. you know, family spouse support is uh, very important. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Mike. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, jumping right in here. So if anybody else has any questions, feel free uh, to put it in the Q&A or in the chat. I'm going to try to get to as many as we can. We have about 10 more minutes. Okay, so Chris, how do you trade around earnings? You mentioned conviction. Is it conviction in the story or company or conviction in the technicals of the stock? It's more the story in the company. Um, Pinterest is a good one. There's a bunch of stocks actually uh, reporting this week. Pinterest is the one that's top on my list right now. Over the weekend, I did a quick study um, as far as where the company has come from, where I think it's going, where it's at right now, where the stock price is at, what the valuation's at. And I was kind of teetering. Was I going to take my profits? Because the stock's up, uh, I don't know, I bought it at 24. It's up near 70. I think today it's over 70. It's like, it's, it's, it's a substantial investment, but it's still a short-term capital gain. And I don't make decisions based off short-term and long-term. I prefer if they're long-term, if I'm going to sell. But this one is, is, is still well within the short-term capital gain. So my question going into later this week is, how do I think, are they going to blow out earnings? Is the stock going to get hurt? Has it run too much? Are we still in the early stages of the company? So, I did, I did put this comment on someone else's Twitter. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I, he, he had sold. And I said, you know, I got to make the decision this week if I'm going to sell or I'm going to hold it through the earnings. Um, my personal opinion, earnings, I hate earnings season. I hate it because so many companies take these big swings these days. And I don't remember it being like this in the past. And, and, and you'll see stocks go up 10, 15, 20%. And you'll see stocks go down 10, 15, 20%. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate earnings season. It's just, I, I just don't like it. It's not, not something I like to do. But with Pinterest, I believe I'm going to hold through earnings. And uh, it's one of those things where you cross your fingers. You're like, hopefully everything works out. I believe in the company. I believe in the story. And that's why I'm holding. Um, it's a little overvalued at this point, but I, I think it's got more runway. So we're going to hold. And I guess we'll find out by Friday morning if I'm right or not. So it's, it's tough. Earnings, earnings season is very tough. And, and yeah, I don't like it. It's not fun, especially with growth stocks. I agree. This question is from Randy. He says, much of what you speak of reminds him of Van Tharp and his beliefs. Um, Please, at risk management, discipline stops and profit exits matter as much or more than a perfect entry. Can, do you measure your trades in terms of initial risk or some other method? I do initial risk. So I did read Van Thorpe when I was younger, and, and he, he has a concept of 1R. And, and, and if you make a trade and, and stocks at 10 and it goes to 20, you've made a 1R profit. And then you actually you kind of use that against what you could possibly lose in the stock. So usually you want to make 3 or 4R or 2 to 4R in a stock versus what your loss could be. Um, so I, I do look at stocks when I buy them and I get in how I allocate my percentage within the portfolio of how much I want to buy. 
and what my position size is going to be. So there's two things. I, I don't really go off expectancy because I'm not a systems trader. So I don't have the volume to really get there and understand what my expectancy is going to be um, over a course of a year or two years or three years, but it's more position size. How much can I put into a stock where the position makes sense, where if it doesn't work, it's not going to hurt the overall portfolio and I can withstand the loss within the portfolio. And anyone that follows me online notices that my largest positions in the growth portfolio don't really exceed 10 to 11 or 12%. Right now, Teladoc is over 11% and I'm not going to trim it. But last year I did trim four different stocks that started to get up near 10% and I cut them in half took my profits off the table because I felt more comfortable having the position size smaller. Now I will note three of those four stocks continue to go higher. Now I still own them, but I left a lot of money on the table by trimming the stocks, but it's just, it's a comfort level for me to have that position size. Um, we have a question about um, with Bitcoin. Um, what web do you use for trading Bitcoin? And do you have a wallet that you recommend for storing uh, BTC and ETH? So I use Gemini. Um, Gemini is actually owned by the Winklevoss twins who became famous based off the social network movie with Facebook. Um, I like the company A because it's in New York. B, it's insured in the state of New York. I am born and raised in the state of New York, although I live in Jersey now, um, and did my research. And I feel like they follow all the regulations and protocols as best as possible for this new asset that's out there. I bought my original Ethereum and Bitcoin um, from Coinbase. I ran into a couple issues with Coinbase when the site wasn't working well, and that's why I moved away from it. Now, Coin Coinbase, I believe, is going to go public this year. I do still think it's a great um, uh, company, if you will, that you can buy and, and host your uh, crypto, if you will. I just happen to prefer Gemini at this point. And again, no affiliation with them. I just, so far, everything's worked out really well. Knock on wood, I haven't had any issues. I store my coins in their cold storage. Okay, this uh, comes from uh, one of your FinTwit followers. He says, thank you for your transparency and helping, um, you know, them and, and everybody else who follows you tremendously. How do you approach projecting valuations on some of these relatively new companies? One example is BB or the uh, genomics plays. Some reputable accounts talk about these companies going five times in five years. How do you personally go about estimating future growth in these nascent companies? It's tough. It's, it's a lot of it's a guessing game. And, uh, and a lot of it's it depending on what metrics you're using. You can come up to where you think they're going to go to over the future. I think the key thing for me is I'm looking for companies, and I do my annual trends list. I'm looking for trends in, in industries and then trying to pick the best stocks from those industries that I think can grow over time. Um, I know Kathy Wood does a really good job with this as well, and she just put a great report out uh, about a week or I think it was last week, as far as what she thinks maybe the top 10 trends or so are going forward. So whether it be electric vehicles, genomics, um, uh, I don't know, drones, whatever, whatever it may be, whatever you 3D print in. I, I kind of look at the industries that I think will grow and that are still in the infant, infant stages now and then seek out what I think are the best companies in those industries and then buy them. Um, one company I own right now is Fastly and, and Cloudflare NET is, is its competitor. I think sometimes in industries like that, you don't pick a winner between the two, own both of them. So if you have $5,000, I'm just saying that number, and you want to put it into one stock, split it and put 2,500 in each. I mean, maybe they'll both win. One might win more than the other, but it's almost impossible to really determine who the winner in industry is going to be. This was always the argument in the early 2000s. Was it Intel or AMD? Who was going to be the ultimate winner? And I think long-term Intel became that winner, but here we are 20 years later and AMD's having a nice run here. So you, you just don't know who's going to win. So sometimes when you're looking at a really strong industry that you think is going to grow over time and there's multiple stocks in the industry, buy, buy the top two or three. And, and then allocate your money that way. That's just my opinion. 
All right, great. Do you have aspirations of trading or investing full time uh, and to quit your architecture job? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, it's, it, I, I think one thing you just have to do is understand yourself and, and what you're capable of doing. I think from uh, staring at a screen all day and just from a stress level, I wouldn't want my money wrapped up in the market as my main income. It just, I like, I, I, I make a great living doing what I do in the real estate world. And I have that constant income that comes in there. And the money that I, I have in my growth account or any of my money I have in my 401ks, my IRA, the index funds that we have for the kids or even the crypto account, that's there to kind of just appreciate over time. So it's there for me for later on in life, whether it be five years from now or 20 years from now, I just, I wouldn't want my main income to ever come from the market. I think it'd be too, too stressful for me. I don't think my mental makeup is there to be a full-time trader. It's great awareness. Definitely. I, I think Michael, I mean, it's, everyone's just gotta be self-aware for what works for them. I think that, and that's one key thing you can say here is when you're in the market, whether you're a day trader or a swing trader or a trend trader or a value investor, whatever it may be, you have to just figure out what suits you best. It's the self-awareness of, of what, what's comfortable, what, what allows you to sleep comfortably at night. And, and I think that's why I position the position trade, the, the, the positions I have and the way I do. It's also why my growth account, which has grown, I mean, my growth account did really well last year, where it was roughly 20% of my overall liquid investments that are, that are out there. Um, it's probably closer to almost 30%. I, I, I say it right now, it's about 25% a quarter of my, my overall liquid net worth. But my growth account, which is my most active, is overall just a small piece of my, all my investments. It's roughly 25 to 30% right now. So if, if that account went down 30% tomorrow, you got to understand it's 30% of only 30% of all my investments. And people say, well, what are your other investments? It's I have a 401k. My wife has a 401k. We have an IRA that we transferred over years ago, which, which I can trade uh, uh, tax-free. So I, I have individual stocks in that account. That's really my family account. Th those are the stocks that I'll buy with the kids now as they're getting older. So if my daughter loves Disney, we'll buy Disney. If my son loves Amazon, we'll buy Amazon. More of your traditional type accounts. And then we have an index fund for both, both of the kids. They both have their own index fund. And, and that's just money that we allocate every month. We put money into it. And that's just for them for when they get older. And then... Um, we have company stock with, with a company that my wife works for, and that's, that's separate. And then, of course, now the, the crypto account. Um, and then anything we do real estate, I've had rental properties in the past. That's completely separate, and I barely ever talk about that also online. I kind of keep that private. But the growth account is roughly a quarter to 30% of my, my assets, and that's what I talk about 98 99% of the time online. It's, it's, also, it's also the most exciting. That's great. And you actually answered uh, a couple other people's questions about that, about um, what other growth portfolios you have. So that was perfect that um, you showed how you diversify it across different accounts. I love that you're getting your kids involved too. Like they're interested in Amazon and Disney. Like that's a great way to get them interested in uh, learning about the stock market as well, especially at a young age. Definitely. Uh, so I'm going to end with one more question and then I'll throw it back over to you, Mike. So um, what was your aha a moment that um, really turned your trading around? Do you think there was like a light bulb moment that you had of um, when things started to click? So it, it did. We, we, we started to talk about this a little bit earlier. So it's, it's, it's twofold. It's, it's number one, understand that you're going to have losses and, and, and don't treat this like a sport, like baseball or football. We're trying to keep score of how many wins and how many losses you have. That, that doesn't matter. Um, but with that said, it's also number two, understand what has worked. So Michael mentioned back testing before kind of keep your own personal journal of what you do every year and then start to understand what works and what doesn't, where were your best trades? Why were they your best trades? And, and sometimes I'm better than I am at other times as far as writing the details down, why I buy a stock and I keep it electronic. 
all right, I'm going to buy XYZ stock. Here are the reasons why I'm buying it. And then you, you, you look back four or five years later, you're like, wow, either that was a great insight or what the heck was I thinking back then? Why, why did I think that? And, and you start to gravitate towards what works over time. And I think that's the aha moment to act on your convictions. I think when I was younger, I had a lot of great ideas and, and I had a blog. I've had a blog for a number of years and I put a lot of great uh, annual lists out and half the stocks I wouldn't buy and half the stocks would go up one, two, three hundred percent. And it was just to a point where it was actually my wife that said, why don't you just start buying them? If, if, you, if you write all this stuff and you put all this effort into doing this research, why aren't you buying them all? And, and I think it was just over the last like even just five or six years, I was like, you know what? And it's been a bull market. So people look smarter during a bull market. Just start buying all these great ideas you have. And my portfolio today is it, my growth portfolio is 18 stocks. I, think, I actually think that's too high. I, I probably should cut a few, get it back down to between 10 and 15 and just focus on your best stocks. Now, of those 18 stocks, six of them make up half the portfolio, the allocation, if you will. So it's really focus on your best ideas, put more money into your best ideas, and then just ride them. Ride them with the conviction that you have when you did the research. And over time, if you've done the right research, they should work out regardless of the volatility in between. And I think that's the aha moment is just have that conviction, have some patience. I think I was just too, too gun trigger, too, too quick to sell stuff. And, and listen, even to this day, there's stocks. I gave you a couple examples just within the last year. I was too quick to sell certain things, whether it be a pandemic, whether it be a, a drawdown. We, we all, we're human. We make the same mistakes over and over and over. And, and hopefully I'm just trying to get a little bit better with not making the same mistakes over and over. But Unfortunately, uh, I think anyone that investor trades will notice they'll they'll keep making those same mistakes. But if you get a little bit just a little bit better each year, I think over time, over a 10 year period, you'll see how much better you've truly gotten at it. This is fantastic, Chris. Uh, here we are seven, eight years later. I've got a page full of notes and <laughs> still learning from you. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. How can people find out more about you and uh, well, where can they reach you? Sure. So Twitter, it's at C Peruna. So C-P-E-R-R-U-N-A. And then I have chrisperuna.com. It's just a blog. Um, um, different maybe some, from some other guests. I don't, I don't have any product or services to sell. And people say, well, why, why do you put all this effort into doing your list and the blog? And I just enjoy it. And it's actually my research. It's actually, it is my journal. It's become my journal. Twitter's become my journal. I put up in my, in my account, I put all my buys and sells up now. Um, I put the exact price I'm buying, why I'm buying it, some of the research and, and I go back and, and you can download your, your whole history of Twitter and actually put that into an Excel document. And I do that every once in a while, and just back up everything I have there. That really is my, is my journal as well. It's just what I do. And I just learn. And when you put yourself out there on Twitter, you're putting yourself out there for a lot of criticism. And as I said earlier, trolls, a lot of people that are going to question what you're doing, why you're doing it. Uh, pretending maybe you're, you're going to do something. I've been on Twitter since 2009 and people are like, well, he's just building his audience so he can sell something. Well, it's been 12 years. I'm not selling anything. And there's nothing against selling something. I think if the previous question, Melissa, that you said, if I ever went into trading full time, I would probably have to sell something, whether it be a service, um, whether I did seminars or coaching, because I'd want that constant income, that more secure income to kind of um, come in with what I was doing from the investment world as well. But because I have that income outside of the market, I just, A, I don't have the time and B, I just, I just don't have the, I guess the, uh, the drive to go out there and sell something. So you can find me on Twitter and you can find me on the block. And, uh, and that's like chrisperuna.com. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a great blog. Definitely check it out. Yep. And, and then Twitter and I'm very engaging. I mean, come, come, come chat. 
come, come. I think the best thing about Twitter is you, you can be interactive with just about anyone you want in the world. I mean, whether I mentioned Aval or Taleb or, 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 or Elon Musk, I mean, you, you've got some great, you got the richest man in the world who's active on Twitter. And then you just have your everyday common people like us that are active on Twitter. And, uh, and I think it's such a great platform minus some of the negativity that's out there. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, you're a gem and I appreciate you being here with us today. Thanks again, man. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Melissa as well. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you to everyone in the audience. And uh, any questions, any follow-ups, feel free to, to catch me on Twitter. And if, if there were some questions that weren't answered, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely answer them there when I can. Amazing. Thanks again. Thank you, everybody, for being here. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank Take you, care. everybody. Much love. Peace thank out. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow. <laughs> that was really something. Wow. It was so interesting to get that perspective from a part-time trader about how they manage this with a full-time career as well as with uh, two young kids. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, Chris is a fountain of knowledge and I continue to learn even more uh, from him. Like, uh, for example, uh, I had, uh, I didn't really know about the, uh, the security the or the insurance on crypto at, at some of the the major coins versus doing it with Robinhood. It's something that, that I need to look into because uh, I have been trading crypto pretty lightly through Robinhood. So uh, that that's something good to, to know. Uh, yeah, yeah, something that something that's good to know. But um, but yeah, I fall more into the trader camp. Uh, I've been holding my Bitcoin position now for. Uh, a little over a, a month and a half. I caught the breakout in, in December, but but yeah, I still consider myself more of a trader versus what he's doing, which is more long-term holding. But yeah, still super important to know about these things. Absolutely, and I love that he even said that um, having patience is key. And he mentioned that a few times that um, he learned to you know. Um, when you're balancing having a family and a career um, and not ha being so, you know, attuned to the market, you know, throughout the day that when he went to Disney World, for example, with his family, he forgot to set his stop loss and he had that, you know, that big loss and, you know, to not let that really impact his trading and, and his attitude, like, you know, that took years and time for him to be able to say, you know what, you're going to have losses. Now he learned that he can make sure he sets that stop loss the next time around, or even just be patient just to give it a little bit more time and maybe mm. to hold a little bit longer because maybe there will be that bounce back. Yeah, you know, another great strategy for, for traders too, uh, and I do this as well, is to have a checklist, like a going away checklist for your trading account. So checking stop losses, checking trading plans, uh, anything that, that you need to do for any of your positions, have that all written out beforehand, uh, double check it before you leave and, and then uh, go on because yeah, otherwise uh, you might come down to a really <laughs> uh, nasty surprise when you get back. Oh man, I think that ties back to my other um, key insight that I got out of this was, um, you know, when he lost everything in college, like, you know, he had, didn't really have the knowledge base yet. You know, he just, him and a bunch of his dorm buddies were like, let's go, um, let's do this trading thing. How you start some, saw some, you know, immediate profits and he saw, oh, you know, I'm getting the hang of this. And then when he had that big, you know, fallout where he lost all of his money, he, that's when it really like, 
propelled him forward to say, I'm going to figure out this trading thing and figure why all my money vaporized. Like, how did that even happen? I think that's so important that sometimes you do learn from those losses. And I think that's the best way is to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and say, okay, well, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Or if it does happen, not as substantially as before. You know what that kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of the recency in, in GME and AMC how you have so many people that are just getting involved in the market now. You're, you're reading message boards. You, you see this thing like going up uh, like 50, 100% like every single day. And a lot of people got swept up in that. And many of them didn't have a, a plan. Just uh, like kind of following along with whatever's being said on social media and hold the line and uh, like uh, just hold on to this with, with the death grip. Oh, it's going to come back. And then finding out the hard way, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people, uh, that you, you have to have plans for when are you going to take profits? When are you going to cut losses? How much are you going to risk? How much of a position are you going to put into any of these names? Uh, the way to make big money in trading, whether it's stocks, forks, well, whatever, crypto, whatever it is, is staying power compounding uh, you, you need to be able to stay in this game a long time to allow the power of compounding to work having a, a ginormous gain in uh, in a couple of names that's fantastic but no one trade should make or break an account yes i agree with that and i think that's one of the things you guys talk about in the mara elite when you guys meet on a weekly basis and also in the room where you can share some of those um insights um with other members yeah that's a, a big thing too we're constantly sharing um position sizing strategies uh if you're new you you probably want to risk one percent uh, of your capital and that doesn't mean you know just like oh great like i'm only going if i have say a ten thousand dollar account uh, that doesn't mean that i'm just going to buy a hundred dollars worth of gme or abc or elemental p well whatever <laughs> it is uh, right it, it means that that's how much is going to be risked on that trade so uh, the, the way that that i like to position size is to figure out where am I going to get in? Where am I going to get out? And then back into that uh, that amount that I'm going to risk. So if I'm getting in at 100 and I plan on cutting my stop loss at 90, then I'll be able to buy uh, a certain number of shares. If I am going to get in at 100, but my uh, stop loss where I'm going to cut the, the loss is going to be at 95, and I still want to risk that same amount, I'm going to be able to buy significantly more while still risking the same amount uh, of capital. So that's how I like to think about risk. And it, uh, I always like to aim for trades that will give me at least uh, $3 to every $1 uh, that I'm going to risk. Okay, great. No, I think that's a, such an important point, And that's uh, one of the great things that we also heard from Chris, is there anything else that you have to share regarding the highlights? Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the things that, that he talked about was when playing the long game, prepare yourself mentally and physically uh, when there are drawdowns. Uh, I think that there is a very strong uh, mind-body connection. And I think that the more that we're able to 
mentally prepare, like, like uh, visualizing uh, the possible outcomes. Um, the the less caught off guard will be uh, should they occur, right? And so it's mentally preparing, visualizing potential outcomes, and then uh, drawing up plans for how to respond should those outcomes happen. Then we don't get caught off guard and trading is a lot less stressful. All right, great. If you want uh, the full list of our top 10 highlights, check us out on www.marawealth.com. You'll see all the key highlights, not just from Chris Peruna's interview today, but from other people and experts that we have interviewed in the past um, at the Traders Mind Chat Show. And uh, we can't wait to see you next time. Yes, uh, and we hope that this gave you the jump stuff that you needed. Now take it and run with it. See you soon. Bye. Take care, everybody.